Podcasting is an astonishing amount of work, so I rely on some great tools to make it easier. One of my staples is Zencaster. They provide a crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video. I love that it records separate audio and video tracks for the guests and for me so that everything comes through really clearly, even if there's a lag in the internet. Plus, there's a secured cloud backup so you never lose your interviews. Since I'm often recording from remote places, I love that it's easy to record audio only as well as audio and video. It's super easy to use and there's nothing to download aside from your recordings. My guests just click on the link and we start recording. Go to zen.ai slash canine conservationists to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Pro. So again, that's zen.ai slash canine conservationists for 30% off. And welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the joy of talking to Arden from the New York, New Jersey Trail Conference about her work helping build coalitions and use detection dogs to mitigate invasive insect and plant infestations. So Arden Blumenthal joined the trail conference as a volunteer for the Conservation Dog Program in spring 2019, and after volunteering for over 400 hours, she was hired as a program assistant. She's now the program coordinator and handler of her black lab, Pete, and she graduated with a BS in biochemistry from Virginia Tech, where she worked with various species of wildlife, including the elusive Eastern Hellbender. She, Arden, went on to earn an MS degree from Purdue University in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and Arden is passionate about using her experiences in ecology and animal behavior to find innovative, holistic, and practical solutions to socio-environmental and conservation problems. And in her free time, she enjoys all outdoor activities, trying new breweries, playing board games, and reading. So welcome to the podcast, Arden. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, so before we get to this interview, Arden, I'm going to read you our science highlight. And um, if you have anything to say about it, that's great. If not, that's fine too. So this week we are highlighting the paper titled Detection Dogs in Nature Conservation, a database on their worldwide deployment in a review on breeds used and their performance compared to other methods. This was published in Methods and Ecology and Evolution um, by Anna Grimm-Safarth and a couple others. And their goal was to look at the breeds used in different countries for various targets, as well as their overall performance compared to other methods. And what they found is that since 1930, reports exist for 62 countries and 408 animal, 42 plant, 26 fungi, and 6 bacteria species um, being detected with conservation dogs. Altogether, there was 108 FCI classified and 20 non-FCI classified breeds that have been used as conservation detection dogs. So. Uh, if my math is right, that's 128 different breeds listed just in the published scientific lit. And we can imagine that there may be some uh, some individuals that were never published in the scientific literature. Overall, these conservation detection dogs usually worked more effectively than other monitoring methods. And for each species group, regardless of breed, detection dogs were better than other methods in 88.71% of all published cases and only worse in 0.98% cases. Um, so it was only for arthropods that pinchers and schnauzers performed worse than other breeds, um, <laughs> which is interesting. So they did have one case where there were a couple dogs that did worse than other breeds. Um, and this is a lit review, so I don't know um, 
if they only had one pincher and one schnauzer and one lab, and then, you know, they say pinchers and schnauzers performed worse, I'm not sure what that says about the breed. And also, of course, um, there is always the chance that there are times where the dogs performed worse than other methods that just ended up never being published, and those studies are just sitting in someone's file cabinet somewhere. Um, that said, the most deployed breeds of all scientific cases were Labrador Retrievers, um, which is 9.2% of the published cases, undetermined pointing dogs, which is about 8%, so I assume that includes like our Brussels pointing griffons or German short-haired pointers or wire-haired pointers, um, Border Collies at 5.9%, and German Shepherds at 5.6%. The me next most common breed, the English Springer Spaniel, was only mentioned in 2.6% of the cases. They also noted that in 42.2% of the papers published, the breed was not mentioned. So we just can't necessarily say anything at all about breed in a lot of the published papers. So I think the reason I wanted to kind of bring this paper up um, as our, our discussion not specifically for today, this would have fit really well with um, our discussion with Lindsay Ware about using non-traditional breeds, is just to highlight that even the most commonly used breed, Labrador Retrievers, it's only 9% of the time, uh, and 120 dogs, 128 different dog breeds have succeeded in this line of work. So when people come to us asking about breed, while it's a useful place to start, um, I think this paper really highlights that breed is not the only factor for success in uh, conservation dogs. Is that nine point whatever percent of all of the literature or nine point whatever percent of the, the literature where breed is listed? I assume that's of where breed was listed. I uh I don't have that noted down in my little uh my little blurb for myself. Yeah, because I mean if it was and similarly whatever percent of like all of, of the studies, then that would uh, that would make sense because I feel like labs are pretty popular, but like of studies mm -hmm. published, if only, you know, a little bit more than half even have a breed listed, then there are plenty of other yeah. other dogs out there working. <laughs> well, and I could see I could see too, I mean, this focused specifically on the conservation world, but like I did some uh literature reviews for the IABC on COVID sniffing dogs. And there, it seemed like um, labs and Belgian Malinois were really, really overrepresented because I think those are the dogs that you can kind of pull out of breeding programs and throw into a really emergent task very, very quickly. So almost all of the literature review cases I found on COVID were using dogs that they pulled out of bomb or drug sniffing programs um, that were state sponsored. Um, mm -hmm. so obviously they didn't have, or maybe not obviously, but it seems, uh, predictable to me. They didn't have any, like, Nova Scotia duck tolling retrievers or, like, yeah. border collies. Because, like, no one in their right mind is, <laughs> maybe not no one in their right mind. I shouldn't say this about my favorite breed. Um, but nobody is breeding, <laughs> like, kennels and kennels of border collies to do bomb detection work. Like, that's just, they're not the breed that's typically used there. So if you did the same study for COVID dogs you would end up pretty easily concluding that only Belgian Malinois and <laughs> Labrador Retrievers can do this work. And I suspect it's more of like a supply issue. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, so. there's the other factor of um, the, the large number of breeds not listed in the conservation studies probably also has to do with the people who are doing those studies being mostly... I mean, let's assume focused on what the the study objective was. Yeah. Um, 
and not necessarily thinking that even caring what the the breed of dog working is <laughs> not giving that enough thought yeah, and including I mean, that <laughs> Yeah. Whereas, you know, yeah, with COVID no, no, studies, so, yeah, that, it's probably working dog organizations like doing those studies mm-hmm. and, and paying super close attention to where their dogs are coming from. Yeah, well, and I, I think, again, especially when you've got like five dogs that all come from the same kennel, it's pretty easy to say, you know, we had five nine-month-old Labrador retrievers we recruited yeah. from this breeding program, you know, versus like a lot of times we're working with. um. Yeah, the same, the same dog, or you know, one or two dogs, and they're kind of a subcontractor being hired by the researcher. I also wonder, and again, I don't have this in my notes. I read the paper, gosh, like a month ago when I was first outlining this article or this episode. Um, uh, like, did you listen I, I don't to her know talk? If they controlled. I did. It was so good. Um, okay, but good, I don't yeah. remember if they controlled for the fact that like. There might be 13 papers that all used a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, but that was all Dr. Karen DiMatteo's dog train. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I don't know, like, yeah, I, I, I don't remember in their methods if they controlled for that. Yeah, you yeah, hope that she did. Um, the, the, <laughs> the methods for these things can get quite complicated. So it's like, that's a whole other, mm-hmm. it seems a like a simple question. Podcast, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was involved in like a, yeah. a systematic review, um, while I was in grad school and, um, that was pretty complicated, but yeah, I, I listened to her talk and yeah. I actually had thoughts that I wanted to send her about, <laughs> about it. Cause she actually talked a little bit about plants. Um, I think like, some of the unsuccessful like studies that she had mentioned that were in her review um mm, were plants were plant projects and yeah and i just i kind of wanted to dig into that with her a little bit um because i think that there well i was actually really surprised to see the stats that she had that m- most of the um the majority of the studies had dogs, uh, detection dogs come out as, you know, when the, the better of the methodologies. Um, I was actually, I was actually surprised about that. Um, <laughs> I guess I shouldn't be. I was surprised uh, at 88%. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, yeah, but that I just seems high. That, yeah. I, I think maybe it's a, exactly what you were talking about. Pe- filtering out, um, positive results from the, <laughs> that are actually being published versus um some negative results or like non-significant results um just not being published um but i think that plants in particular it's 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 actually lovely to see negative <laughs> negative results published <laughs> um um yeah just for more information out there but i think plants in particular is interesting here because i do think that um it's a very context dependent when dogs can be successful with plant projects mm-hmm. um, yeah so you might think yeah that, well that's gonna be a you good might teaser that, for what we're talking about <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i guess we can go into that later <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, no, and I, I like, and anecdotally, just from, you know, discussions around the break room when I was at Working Dogs for Conservation, 
there were a lot of a lot of projects that didn't quite go anywhere or pilot studies that didn't quite go anywhere that I know for a fact weren't published. And also a lot of times the experienced handlers in the room would kind of be like, yeah, I wonder if we had done it a different time of year or, you know, yeah, like both for plants and insects in particular, it's so seasonally dependent. And then even I know they were talking about a couple reptile projects where if the reptiles are way deep in burrows and torpor, that that is you know likely to affect whether or not the dog can find their odor so anyway let's get to your interview now tell us a little (laughs) bit about the new york new jersey trail conference working structure so like when i was on the website it looks like the dog program is kind of a small part of this overall organization is that that right Yes, we are a small program. It's um, myself as the coordinator and uh, Josh Beasy, who's my mentor, and he's the uh, trainer handler for the program. Um, So the trail conference uh, was actually established over 100 years ago in 1920, if you'll believe that. Um, It was originally designed um, as a volunteer-powered nonprofit to connect people with nature, basically. So it was designed to help... um, to organize volunteers to build and maintain trails outside of uh, New York City. So uh, getting people um, outside of the city to, you know, connect with trails. Um, But since then, it's expanded quite a bit in their mission. Um, Generally, our mission is um, is to connect people with nature still. So we believe that the you know, the joys of nature belong to everyone, I think is what actually is listed on the website. Um, <laughs> um, we think that conservation is um, our shared duty and um, we still are a volunteer powered organization. So um, we, I'm part of the ecological stewardship department um, and our department in particular, um, we're focused on building and conducting running programs and also informing policy um, in New York mainly um, to improve uh, ecological integrity of our natural spaces and then also inspire, you know, a shared um, sense of responsibility um, for environmental stewardship. So we're also involving um, volunteers in our department. Um, so that's a big picture. That's super helpful. And wow, I had no idea that it was that, that old. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. So like I said, it started small, um, just <laughs> organizing volunteers to, to build and maintain trails. But yeah, now, now we do, um, have a, a leg of the organization that is focused on conservation, um, of public lands and that uh, ecological stewardship uh, component. So we, we really do believe that, yeah. you know, the, your experiences on those trails, your experiences as a, a recreator, um, your experiences outdoors really um, depend heavily on the health of that ecosystem. Um, no one likes to go on a hike with, um, Japanese barberry uh, scratching their legs uh, every step. Um, and more than that, you know, there are p- people get outside to do specific activities like birding. I know that you are uh, a budding birder. Uh, and the, yeah, you know, something like that. There, <laughs> there are 
there are significant impacts to, you know, the birds, the, the, the avian communities that you're seeing based on um, the entire ecological structure of, of what's in your, in the surrounding area of your trail. So. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And so what, um, what are some of the species that the dogs are currently focusing on? So the, I guess I'll back up a little bit. The program uh, was founded um, in 20, uh, technically 2019, but 2018 is when um, Josh Beasy came to our uh, former um, supervisor, the director of land stewardship, uh, Linda Rolleder, with uh, the idea to volunteer his time to help find uh, rare uh, endangered, threatened uh, native plants. Um, and just as just to help out, just as a volunteer. Um, and Linda was somewhat of a visionary, I guess, and said, um, that is awesome. I have been involved with, with dogs since I was little, but hey, I have a better idea. How about <laughs> you um, join our team to help us uh, detect and uh, manage the invasive species that we are already working on. And um, that was kind of the where the, the program was born. We got uh, Dia in 2019. She was 10 months old. And just a couple months later, they, uh, with the help of our mentors at Working Dogs for Conservation, um, got Dia trained on first species scotch broom. Um, we chose scotch broom as the first species to work on for a couple of reasons. It it's a it's a shrub and it's also evergreen, um, so you can you can see it <laughs> year round essentially. Um, it's pretty easily identifiable. So Josh had no experience um, in the environmental sector. So he was he was a teacher and he was well, working search and rescue um, handler for New Jersey Task Force One at the time. Um, but he didn't know uh, he didn't know much about plants. So that was important um, to have his first species be something that he could be confident in identifying in the field. Um, yeah. Uh huh. And then also we had um, years and years, like pretty much a decade of working with Scotch broom under our belts already. So we knew where discrete populations were and, um, they were easily accessible for, for Josh. Um, and so Scotch broom was the first species we learned, but in 2019, we, uh, received a grant from the, uh, New York state department of environmental conservation to, um, help find and manage uh, three invasive species per year. So um, since then, Dia, our founding dog, has um, learned three species each year, essentially. <laughs> uh, so Scotch Broom was the first, um, but then she learned um, Slender False Broom, which is an invasive grass. Trying to go in order here it might not actually be perfect. Um, <laughs> the Spotted Lanternfly, which I'm sure we'll okay. talk about. <laughs> uh sticky sage um which is a super cool project and i hope we talk about that too it's um there are only uh two known populations in the whole united states i think and one of them is in our region um 
um, oak wilt, which is actually invasive fungus that is uh, deadly to oak trees. Um, kudzu, which, you know, everyone knows is the vine that ate the South. <laughs> um, crested yes. late summer mint. Um, mm. Oh, gosh, I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting a couple here. The, uh, the crested mint sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, that's really funny. Cause that's in a, it's in, um, one, one location that we're working in a region and, um, it's, let's just say it's a highly trafficked, uh, park and, um, you would not want to eat it. There's most definitely dog pee on it. <laughs> Bummer. Bummer. <laughs> um, but yeah, essentially all the species that we initially learned were what we call tier two invasive species, which um, tier two species are, are what we like to call emerging invasive species in our region. So that means that they there are uh, enough populations um, for us to consider them invasive, um, <laughs> but not um, too many that they're too far gone. We still feel like we have a decent chance at eradicating them from our region. Um, or there are species that are um, encroaching specifically on um, a conservation target or or important habitat that we're focused on um, removing from there. So currently, we work on spotted lanternfly, oak wilt, sticky sage, scotch broom, crested late summer mint, and kudzu. And yes, those the, those are all invasive species, uh, but we are uh, hoping to expand to the program um, to include more, uh, let's say, like integrative and holistic programming. So we want to support our partners in our region um, with these big conservation problems. And some of those problems are, are with managing invasives, but some of them are trying to uh, monitor, you know, important uh, rare, threatened, or endangered native species. So, um, yeah, this year we're, we're really placing an impact on um, developing long-term uh, partnerships, new projects um, that, um, yeah, are more holistic. And so we can essentially help our partners monitor these important um, native species so we can better target uh, what our teammates are doing with invasive species removals and um, habitat restoration efforts. So we don't we don't just want to be removing invasives um, anywhere and everywhere. We really want to focus our efforts. Um, we want we want the work to be quality, not quantity. I guess you could say, um, and focus on improving habitat where we already know these important conservation targets are. And we can only do that if we know where they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, gosh, that makes so much sense. And I just wanted to draw out and highlight the point that you made about these tier two invasives and how, you know, generally speaking, like a conservation dog, and even honestly, in a lot of cases, <clears throat> any sort of mitigation effort for invasive species is done kind of at that level or the and or the preventative level. Um, 
because, you know, and I get people occasionally, uh, you know, over on Patreon or people who reach out to me about mentorship who are like, oh my gosh, I would love to work, you know, work with, I've got this dog, I'd love to volunteer, you know, I'm in this area that's totally overrun with like purple loose strife or whatever it is. And it's like, well, if it is, as as you say, totally overrun with purple loose strife, that might not actually be, it might kind of be too late, um, especially for like a single dog human team to be involved. Is that is that kind of your experience and understanding or am I oversimplifying there? Oh, no. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, prevention is key. Prevention is the the first and the best uh, strategy that we have to fight invasive species. Um, that is why we're targeting what we call tier two emerging invasive species, um, because our efforts go such a lo- much longer way when we direct them towards um, the species that aren't fully established yet. Um, and yeah, I mean, if uh, sometimes you have to take a step back, right? Like we um, love what we do, obviously. Um, we don't get paid much for it, so you kind of have to love it. Um, <laughs> yep. Um, but just because you enjoy your job doesn't mean that um, that it's the right methodology for for every for every project out there. So like, uh, what's that saying? Like um, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we don't, <laughs> that's not what we want to be <laughs> the conservation dogs program. We don't want to um, say that we are the magical fix to all of our invasive species and, and conservation problems in our region, because it's just not true. And we work as part of a really close knit and um, an interwoven team, I guess you could say. Um, so projects that aren't right for us, uh, uh, by us, I mean the Conservation Dogs Program, you know, our, our colleagues um, with the Terrestrial Invasive Species Program are working on with their um, seasonal AmeriCorps crew. Um, those huge projects where partners really need help removing a, a giant infestation um, because it's encroaching in, in on important habitat. The dogs aren't going to be helpful with that. That's important work right. and it needs to be done. Um, but if it's a massive infestation, um, that's obviously... You already know <laughs> where it is. Yeah. <laughs> that's an example of, <laughs> of, you know, a screw. You Don't hammer that screw. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, and I know for, like, so Working Dogs for Conservation has been working on this Dyer's Woad project over on Mount Sentinel in Missoula that's been incredibly successful. And there, what they've done a lot of is partnering the dogs with the volunteer crews so they have volunteer crews who grow go out and pull you know i think one year they pulled something ridiculous like ten thousand plants and then the next year what they what they're doing is the dogs are going through and kind of double checking the volunteers work or finding these little rosettes um the little um it's a i think it's one of those plants that i I, it's not a dicot what's the word biennial um where the first year it's this teeny tiny little like a like a rosette that almost think like a like a dandelion before it blooms and then the second year it grows up into this big this big tall thing that's very easy to find but at that point it's producing seeds potentially and you know blah 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 so you know and there are ways that the dogs can be helpful even in these big infestations but they're just part of that solution if you're building a house you probably want a hammer 
But you probably yeah. don't want to build a house with just a hammer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's a perfect example of um, of how dogs can be useful in those, um, let's call them longitudinal um, invasive species projects. Um, we find that that, as an example, using the dogs to, to find remaining plants after the um, the majority of the infestation has been removed by volunteers or staff. Um, everything they can find, the dogs come in afterwards and um, find the things that were left. Um, and then we also mm -hmm. found <clears throat> we also have found that using the dogs to extend the boundaries of the infestation um, is is also one of the best uses. So we get stuck, especially with these longitudinal projects. We think that we know where the infestation is after five years of searching. Um, we we know where it is. It's here, <laughs> but that's not always the case. Um, especially, um, you know, when you when you take into consideration how those seeding um, those seeds may be distributed. Um, you sometimes you just don't know, and the dogs are unbiased searchers, right? They're they're simply using their noses. Um, just because last year they found plants. Um, in area X um, doesn't mean that when they come, you come back in uh, the next year that they're not going to be searching area Y because that's just where their nose is telling them to go. Um, right. So that's also helpful. Plus you, you cover, you can cover more ground without, you know, doing the fire line, um, <laughs> the, the fire line setup and um, having to search, you know, uh, uh, two more acres than, than where your plants Actually were found sometimes you're just not mm -hmm. looking anymore at was it called the we call it like search fatigue um <laughs> when you've been looking at the same you know um the ground all looks the same after a while and it's hard to see absolutely uh, the plant anymore after you've been searching for two hours so yeah, or what I ran into on the Dyer's Wood project is everything started looking like Dyer's Wood. I would, <laughs> poor uh, Niall Richards, bless her, bless her soul, I would, <laughs> I would be out on Mount Sentinel at like 6 a.m., um, and I've already been out for an hour and a half, and I would be texting her pictures of like every third plant, being like, "This isn't it, is it?" Is this the it? dog says it's not, but like I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is a great point that you made about you know making sure with Scotch Broom that was such a good project for Josh to start on because, good gosh, especially when you're trying to look for these little tiny baby plants, identification can be hard, and especially when you've got like the first couple times I was out there fielding barley, um. And, you know, it was just his first couple days operationally searching for that target. You know, I was looking pretty hard, too. I wasn't just relying on the dog because I knew it was his first day on the job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it turns out nothing that I found was something that Barley had erroneously missed. <laughs> turns out Barley <laughs> was right. But, um, yeah. So, okay. So, I, like, the main reason I wanted to get you on this episode was to talk about, like, just how cool the structure of the New York, New Jersey trail conference is uh, like, it's so collaborative. It seems kind of unique. You said that basically what happened was Josh, did Josh previously have a relationship with them? Like, was he a volunteer already when he came to them with the dog idea? No, he said that <laughs> he said that he, uh, the New York, New Jersey trail conference website was his go-to to find, uh, to find trails. Um, uh -huh. So yeah, he just reached yeah. essentially That's a cold so call. Cool. 
Wow. Okay. Because my next question was, you know, do you have any advice for anyone who, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, I love, you know, the local, you know, whatever the local friends of, like, there's a Friends of Lolo National Forest. You know, do they need my help? And Josh just kind of got, I I don't want to say got lucky. Maybe he wrote a really good cold email. Um, I think it's a bit of both, most likely. I mean, I wasn't there, so I can't speak directly um, for him. Um, But advice. I think that landing in the right home is is so important. Um, Josh, I guess a bit of luck is that um, Josh just happened um, to contact uh, our director of land stewardship at the time, Linda, and um, and it was an organization whose mission aligned with um, mm-hmm. what a conservation dog program would want to accomplish. And I guess also importantly, had the infrastructure to support the effort. So um because the trail conference is a volunteer powered organization and because the stewardship department um is actually the um the host of the new york um lower hudson prism so prism is an acronym that means partnership for regional invasive species management um linda at the time was the was the director um and she essentially was um, the person who was organizing the um, the over. I think it was over sixty partners at the time that were um, oh God. part of the prism. So New York State um, has the Environmental Protection Fund, and that. Environmental Protection Fund or EPF um, funds the PRISMs. So PRISM, like I mentioned, is the stands for Partnership of for Regional Invasive Species Management. There are eight of them in New York State, um, and each of the PRISMs are basically coalitions of non-governmental organizations, um, uh, the schools. Um, even private individuals who um, have basically are stakeholders in um, invasive species um, monitoring and management and also outreach and also um, (laughs) uh, regulation. (laughs) So uh, the trail conference as the host organization of the lower Hudson prism, which is our, our, our region, um, means that we um are you know the 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 leaders of our region's um partners so we we will um we're we're wrangling them i guess (laughs) in short terms so the infrastructure was there to not only support um in the trail conference to support a new innovative program um but also we had the connections with partners in our region um, to be able to um, f- find projects that people needed help with and um, <laughs> push our push education and outreach 
um, with the dogs and um, follow up our monitoring efforts with actions, right? So we're not just finding plants um, with our dogs. We're, we're finding plants and removing them and um, taking down the data that will, you know, be pushed into this machine um, to help us have better management strategies in the future. That was a whole lot. <laughs> no, that is just fine. Um, no, because I think, again, like, I love how integrative this approach is. And I think it's, again, it's what I'm so excited about here. And there's so much to it. But I think there's so much value. And I hope that this is an opportunity that more conservation dog people um get going down the line. And I, I think this makes a lot of sense as a model for more future projects versus, you know, and not that there's anything wrong with this, but the Working Dogs for Conservation, Rogue Detection, uh, Conservation Dogs Collective, Canine Conservationists model where, you know, we're just kind of freelance dog handlers and don't necessarily have a home and we travel the country or even the world um, and there are obviously things with that that are exhausting as far as not having a home base and constantly pursuing contracts. And not that I know you're also in the thick of grant writing right now. So not that, not that it's inherently <laughs> easier, but I love, I, I just, I love the idea of being able to have the dog team integrated into this larger long-term management plan for a specific place. And once you've got the dog on board, you can keep thinking about, okay, what, what does this landscape need next? What does it need now? Yeah. And how can we use the dog or, 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 you know, in the next phase of, of this, this land? Hi, Quint and Luca here. Luca is an Akita mix that I adopted from a shelter almost two years ago. From a very young age, Luca has struggled with some general fear and anxiety, um, especially out in the world. I randomly took a nosework class and noticed a massive difference in her behavior. She was a lot more interested in exploring her environment and loved going on adventures. I love being a patron because selfishly, I get so much great information about nature and conservation that I would not have gotten otherwise, like books to read and articles to look at. I also get access to Kayla's great knowledge. I am new to Patreon, but I'm excited to have a group of people to help Luca and I move forward with combining our love of nature and her natural sensibility. I love that I'm able to support someone exploring two of my favorite things, conservation and dog behavior. And maybe one day, with the support and knowledge from Canine Conservationness, I can get there myself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wouldn't say that we you know, our program's more secure than others, right? Like always finding funding in our field in general is difficult and takes a certain amount of persuasion. Um, but that is, I would say, what makes our program so unique is that we are um, we are focused on our home. <laughs> We're focused on our region, what the mm -hmm. needs of our region are, what the conservation needs uh, of our partners are, what problems are they having um, in um, monitoring and management that we can help with. Um, and because, you know, we don't, we don't have to worry about, you know, traveling um, from spot to spot to pick up projects, we can really dig into those long-term um, longitudinal, just large scale projects um, that, that 
are really satisfying in that way because you can see tangible, yeah. tangible things happening um, year after year. Yeah, yeah, I know my dad, my dad used to work for, he's retired now, but he was in the Land and Water Conservation Department for Ashland County um, in Wisconsin, and, you know, he and I have had a couple conversations over beers where he's been like, man, Kayla, I wish, I wish you'd been in this line of work and doing this when I was still in charge of my department, because I think we probably could have found funding for you and brought you on, you know, full-time within the county department, um, rather than kind of having to do this freelance stuff. And maybe that'll be an option for me, you know, down the line. But uh, yeah, and I know another thing that Charles Van Ries and I have talked about is, you know, for example, he used to work at the Flathead Lake Biological Station, which is like an outpost of the University of Montana. And like, how cool would it be if some of these biological research stations just, you know, as part of their staff team, a couple of the bigger ones had a dog around and, <laughs> you know... I I would happily live there. And then every year, like as part of what you can consider as you're proposing studies in the Flathead Lake Station, and especially more of these longitudinal studies, you may be able to recruit the dog handler team for your project. And that could be, you know, a perk and a money-making prospect for some of these research stations. So. Yeah, I think that. If anyone's um, listening <laughs> is running one of those. Holler at us. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do see that um, to be where our field is going um, in the way long term. Um, just from what I've seen, um, actually, you know, like state departments reaching out um, for uh-huh. for projects that they've been doing with just human only surveyors um, and not seeing the success that they want, and um, you know, some state departments already do have their own dogs and they're being, um, you know, their, their, their time is being stretched thin with other projects or asks from the other departments or, or other states even to help out. Um, and a lot of these projects that these biologists are working on are these really long-term projects. So states are not just going to stop caring about certain species. Um, in the next two years, most research projects that are most research that's, that's taking place, um, you know, we're looking at the health uh, of these species as a long term, as a long term goal. Um, nothing happens yeah. quickly in the conservation world. <laughs> and it's just not it's right. just not feasible to hire a, a contracted team year after year after year after year who has to every year pick up and and travel across the country so that's just my Mm -hmm. personal opinion you can cut that if you want (laughs) no no i think i think that's spot on and i think you know the first thing that or yeah the first thing that popped into my head before we go on to our next question is i think there will still always be places that are remote enough or uh just low population density where they will have to import dog teams. Like I'm thinking of where I was stationed in Nebraska last year and they had three dog teams there. And frankly, we were in a town of like 450 people. Um, (laughs) They're probably not going to get someone who's uber local um, and especially not three people to pull from that super local area. But you might be able to find and partner with someone from Omaha, which was three hours away. That's a big enough city. There's certainly someone there. Um, and, uh, 
and and you know honestly nebraska is not the most remote place that conservation dogs have been used so i think <laughs> i think it's always going to be a little bit of both but i i totally Absolutely. agree and i i think you know as this field continues to grow having these dogs dog teams integrated more i mean i know i've said this like five times just seems like a very intelligent efficient and exciting way for this field to keep going forward yeah completely agree and you can keep using that word <laughs> yeah yeah uh, the, the title of this episode is just gonna be all caps integration <laughs> uh, okay so now i've got a bunch of questions from people over on patreon so if you are not a member on patreon yet it's three bucks a month you get to ask questions we have a book club you get to join um some training calls where we we review training videos from you and your dog working together and we've got everything from like brand new super green shelter dogs and puppies up to dogs that are currently operational in the the conservation dog world so quick patreon plug onwards <clears throat> Megan from Patreon asks, how do you get land managers on board? Does the trail conference own its own land like the Nature Conservancy does? Or do you partner with people? How does that work? We Yeah, we are not a land conservancy. We don't own land. So getting um, land managers on board is not something we really have to do. Um, because going back to um, what you know, our mission is we're not trying to sell ourselves uh, per se or the idea of um, using the dogs. We are pretty focused on um, reaching out to folks who um, have a specific problem, monitoring, detection, et cetera, problem that um, they think that we can help with. So we don't we don't have to really do much convincing. It's um, <laughs> once they know that we have working detection dogs that um, are working with other species successfully. Um, it's it's more of just proper communication about um, why we think the dogs in particular could be um, the the a, a, a potential solution or you know a um, a methodology to. Uh, augment their current efforts. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and then next up, Bronwyn, Bronwyn, I, gosh, I hope that I'm getting your name right, Bronwyn, um, from Patreon asks, what is the best way to collect and store insect samples? Are there special considerations about decay? Do you need to make sure you've got live samples? What are we thinking about when we're working specifically with insects training samples? Yeah, so I can only speak to my um, personal experience and the one insect we work with is spotted lanternfly. Um, we trained um, Dia and other dog Fagan on spotted lanternfly in 2019. So um, I'm actually a, a Pennsylvania native. Um, <laughs> so I think I was still volunteering at the time. Actually, I organized you know a trip um, for. Um, Josh and actually Amy for um, at Working Dogs for Conservation to come to Pennsylvania and train um, on spotted lanternfly where there was already an infestation. We didn't have to worry about transporting um, transporting the invasive species back to a non-invaded area. Um, and I will just say that um, Training in situ, if you can, is is the way to go. <laughs> um, but to mm -hmm. talking specifically about um, 
handling and storing samples, we just simply did not physically touch the insect with our hands. Um, we cleaned our equipment, <laughs> put them in our storage um, containers, and uh, froze them. So we keep frozen samples of the insect. Um, but, you know, there's limited replay value, I guess you could call it. There are only so many times you can defrost and refreeze that bug before um, it gets pretty funky. Um, <laughs> and it's no longer, you know, it's no longer the same, the same thing. So um, thankfully, we don't really have to worry about it too much because we have such easy access to lanternfly. Um, pretty much all of New Jersey is invaded at this point. Um, so, you know, finding samples isn't a problem if we are no longer using, um, if we can, if we can no longer use a sample that we stored, um, you just have to make a trip to get another one. Um, the egg masses, which is, you know, they're obviously their egg stage um, of the spotted lanternfly um, is, is a little bit more delicate, I guess you could say. Um, the spotted lanternfly egg masses are, are covered in this putty like material um mm. and we and sometimes they're not covered at all um sometimes they're just exposed um naked eggs i guess you could call them um they'll lay them on pretty much any surface but um that is a little bit of a different story um not so much as like storing wise we still obviously clean our um storage containers and we freeze our samples. Um, but because the egg masses can, um, you know, be either be covered or uncovered and they can be on different um, surfaces and they're easy to um, crack, crumble, and sometimes just to have the eggs burst themselves, um, handling them in the way that, you know, it, it with, with an intention is important. So are you keeping the bark on or off? Are you training another, um, are, are you going to train with just a, a, a piece of bark um, as, um, to train them off of that, are you going to um, intentionally squish the eggs so they're they're smellier? Um, yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. I don't know about handling other insect species, so because um, since we've only worked with spotted lanternfly, but I'd imagine it would be pretty similar. Just don't don't touch the insect with your hands. Um, unfortunately, spotted lanternfly are uh, plant hoppers, so catching them can be a little bit tricky um but yeah just don't touch them with your bare hands and freeze them yeah okay that makes sense yeah sounds somewhat similar uh to the other other targets that we may work with um i found plants were also tricky and uh i know it was kind of funny when I, again when i was at working dogs for conservation working with dyer's woad it was so hard to get dyer's woad to grow for us in pots I know, and it's like it's this horrific invasive species. It's the <laughs> yeah. same thing with it's scotch so broom. hard to grow. Every time I planted oh it, it dies, and it's like, are you kidding me? You're supposed to be indestructible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, I, and then of course plants, they get freezer burned so fast if you try to freeze them, and you know it changes the odor profile. And I think so. Megan from Patreon asked whether there are unique challenges to working with insect targets for detection dogs. And I immediately was thinking of, you know, these life cycles of insects that we may be working with. And I think, again, this this 
plays into our plants as well, where at different times of the year, different stages of life, whether they're seeding or growing or, you know, whatever it is, uh, both our plants and insects smell differently. So what, what do you have to say about these insect targets and challenges for the dogs there? Insects are tricky. Um, the challenges, again, I'm going to speak to a spot and lantern fly because that's where my experience is coming from. But um, obviously, uh, the adult and nymph stages of the spotted lantern fly can move. Um, <laughs> they hop, they fly, um, which seems obvious. But when you're when you're trying to find, um, if you're thinking about finding an individual, that is a problem. Um, just because your dog has, uh, indicated at a certain spot and you don't see anything doesn't mean that, um, that insect didn't just hop away because they got a little bit too close. Um, so that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> another thing is that, um, the, uh, I'm, ass- I'm assuming that most insects do to some extent, but spotted lanternfly in particular is known to be a heavy feeder and leaves around a lot of excrement. Um, This is actually because they are lacking an enzyme to process what they are um, ingesting. (laughs) So they need to ingest quite a bit (laughs) in order to get the nutrient that they need to survive. Um, So they leave behind what we call uh, honeydew, which is essentially just like sugar water. and it promotes the growth of sooty mold and other fungus. Um, this um, is important. <laughs> it creates, you know, a whole scent picture um, around an infestation. And once again, going back to number one that I mentioned, plant, uh, insects move. Um, you there actually might not be an insect around <laughs> where your talk is indicating, and um, but they are smelling um, the rest of the scent picture from what is left behind. Yeah, we we think a lot about this. Um, well, we thought about a lot this when we were first when we were initially training the dogs because um, we had to think a lot about context in which we would actually be um, helping managers. Um, do we care if there's a large enough infestation to leave behind? You know this. Um, detectable, you know, residue of, of honeydew and fungus. Um, are those the kind of infestations we're helping them look for? Yes or no? We didn't have all the answers when we started. So essentially right now our, our dogs know how to detect all life stages um, of spotted lanternfly, but we have found the most success, I guess, with the egg mass stage. So um and that's because they're cryptic. Like I said, they can lay on anything. Um, sometimes they're covered. Sometimes they're not. They. I don't know if you have ever seen um, a tree of heaven. Um, I'm assuming you have because they're incredibly yes, invasive. Yeah. But that's yeah, that's um, spotted lantern vine's main host, and it's absolutely. It's like the power of evolution when you look at a tree of heaven because I. I swear to God, the sap drips that um, come out of the tree of heaven sometimes and then dry on them look the exact shade, size, shape, everything as a spotted lanternfly egg mass. 
um, it is <laughs> truly an oh ode to evolution. It's crazy. <laughs> um, so yeah, those are pretty yeah, difficult to find. And, uh-huh. um, but then, you know, the other issue is that sometimes, um, a lot of the times, I actually think it's 80% of the time, lanternfly are laying their egg masses in trees at the top 20% of the tree. <laughs> so, Oh, um, well, that's not helpful. <laughs> there is only so much we can do, um, which is why I was saying mm-hmm. earlier about thinking really hard about context in which, you know, you think um, that dogs will be most helpful. Um but insect-wise, I think you're going to, there probably are quite similar problems. Insects, a lot of insects can fly and can crawl and will lay eggs beyond mm-hmm. a detectable distance um, for dogs or humans. Um, and then, you know, when we think about how to manage them uh, after we found an infestation, that is the is arguably the even larger problem. Um, So even if we have found them, thinking about how to um, contain and eradicate uh, emerging insect um, invasions is is honestly something we haven't figured out yet. So that's kind of a bummer, but... (laughs) It's the truth. Yeah, <laughs> we have I guess failed we multiple times. It is, a free, it is a free one-hour podcast, so I guess we didn't expect you to have all of the solutions to all of our ecological problems. <laughs> Good, that takes a little pressure uh, off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, take a take a deep breath. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a it's a free podcast. What do you want? Uh, <laughs> um, okay. So last question that I have written down is from Ashley from Patreon. Um, And I think we've already touched on this, but we can kind of draw it out specifically. Aside from identifying and removing invasives, what is the New York, New Jersey trail conference doing to prevent their spread? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm happy um, this person asked that because prevention is the number one um, way to stop the spread of invasive species. Um, so we are involved with um, legislative efforts. In New York State, there's Regulation Part 575 um, that was adopted in July 2014, and it prohibits uh, or regulates the uh, possession, um, importation, sale, etc., of um, select invasive species. And um, our uh, my colleague is involved in a working group, um, our Laura Hudson Prism working group, that um, uh, lobbies to have certain species um, put in that regulation. Um, so that's an important part. Um, the second is outreach and education. And we are currently bringing someone on our team right now um, to, to, that is their main focus. Um, I know many of the other um, PRISMs have dedicated um, education and outreach um, coordinators. Um, invasive species are so, are so hard to, uh, to communicate. People don't understand what invasive species are. They don't know why they should care. Um, they, you know, I, I've gotten uh-huh. a line before, but uh, we're an invasive species. I have no right to uh, to, to mm-hmm. kill, uh, to, to, mm-hmm. to regulate any other species. And, um, that's incredibly frustrating. Um, and 
yeah, education and outreach is, is definitely an avenue where we know that dogs can be helpful. Um, I, I believe that that dogs are just incredible ambassadors. They're so charismatic. People don't have to care about plants um, to care about dogs sniffing plants. It's just cool. Um, So, yeah, those are just a few of the things that we're doing besides, you know, active management. Um, But I'd also say that habitat restoration is becoming more also um, more of a priority for uh, our team and um, it's something that follows closely behind management but when you if you just remove an invasive species um, it's likely that it's going to be reinvaded by another invasive species um, if not the invasive species you just removed <laughs> so having the bigger picture about um, what that uh, what that habitat was is supposed to look like. Um, how is it supposed to function? What species should be there? Um, that that's an extra step that needs to be taken to make sure that you know our management efforts are 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 not just you know removing the invasives, but returning returning that habitat to um, what it was you know meant to be its healthiest state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. No, and I know exactly what you mean as far as the invasives. I've had actually a very dear friend of mine. Um, we were <laughs> we were doing some kind of, uh, we were in high school and it was some sort of volunteer work that we had. To, it was like compulsory volunteer work for our high school or the National Honor Society or something. And um, he was just like, I just don't get it. Like, how is an invasive species different than survival of the fittest? Um <laughs> You know, he's just like, this This species is clearly doing better than everything else. Like, isn't that evolution? <laughs> and, you know, my dad being yeah. a conservation biologist, I like, I was like, no, that's definitely wrong. But also when I was 16, I didn't know how to explain that better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it is hard to communicate. But um, I'm just going to plug Doug Ptolemy right now. Um, he's got some amazing, uh, an amazing YouTube video in particular that I'm thinking about where he, where he breaks it down. and. Um, just an amazing, amazing speaker um, for anyone who's interested in in really understanding <laughs> why invasive species are actually a problem. Um, yeah, plug for Doug Ptolemy. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll make sure to link to him in the show notes. And on that note, do you have anything else that we didn't talk about or that you wanted to bring back up before we wrap up here? Yeah, I guess I, I guess I want to just say something like to people i know there was a question about um you know that was geared towards how to break into the field or whatever um and Mm -hmm. i just want to like do a personal like story for a second i guess um i i i guess i would consider myself a biologist um, but I certainly would never have considered myself a dog trainer, um, sort of a jack of all trades, master of none kind of person. And when I look back at my experience and um, where I am now, a lot of it is pure um, good timing, um, a little bit yeah. of perseverance, definitely a lot of hard work. Um, and then a lot of being willing to work for free <laughs> and yeah i mean I you like did 400 not... hours 
Yeah, I would like that to not be the case for everyone. Um, because I think everyone deserves to be paid for their work and valued for their contributions. I am definitely not mm-hmm. advocating for um <laughs> for giving expertise for free in perpetuity. Um I just want to make sure people out there are looking at me and where I am now as the coordinator of this program and a dog handler as like an unattainable, you know, spot. I'm very close to being like everyone else. I'm like one step away from being like everyone else who's listening um, to this podcast right now. And um, it, a lot of it has to do with finding the right mentor and um being just extremely open to any and all learning experiences. And um, so, yeah, I just wanted some words of hope. And (laughs) I guess that's a little dramatic, but no, I know there are a lot of people trying to break into the field and it's, it's definitely not easy, but like, we're all, as I've learned, as I've gotten older, uh, we're all just kind of making it up as we go along. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, and I think, you know, yeah, so many of us have similar stories in that where, you know, I've talked before on the podcast about how I fundamentally got really lucky with interacting with working dogs for conservation at the right time when they were open to taking a chance on me. And I don't know if I would have been able to get in, figure, I don't know. I don't know if I would have figured this out if they hadn't taken a chance on me. Um, and it was a lot of persistence, and I gave up a couple times on getting into this field before I finally did. Um, so, okay, last thing, where can people find you online, um, follow you on social media, all of that good stuff? Yes, yes. Okay, so the trail conference is uh, nynjtc.org. Uh, they also have an Instagram um, and our program in particular, uh, the Conservation Dogs program, also has an Instagram. Our handle is at DIA, D-I-A, saves, saves the forest. Um, <laughs> we probably will be changing that at some point. It's a relic of when we first started the program when there was only DIA, but now there is DIA, Fagan, and Pete. Um, so that will most likely be getting changed. Um, you can, the prism. Yeah, dogs the save the hug- forest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A simple change. Um, the, yeah. the Lower yeah. Hudson Just Prism also has a website. Um, that's lhprism.org. Um, hopefully we'll be getting that revamped a little bit as we get a um, communications um, coordinator uh, up and running with us. Um, I think that's it. Okay. Yeah. And we'll be sure to link to all of those in the show notes. Um, And for everyone who's listening, thank you so much for being here. We hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can find show notes where we'll include all of Arden's links, donate to canine conservationists, and join our Patreon to join the book club and um, training club calls and all sorts of nerdy stuff over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. Are you on Patreon yet? If you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term, Patreon is the way to go. 
I spend hours per episode researching guests, writing out questions, recording interviews, posting on Patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those, cleaning up the audio, and putting together all of the promotional materials. Even with the help of volunteers, this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time, and right now I'm not paid for it. For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive Detection Dog Training video help calls, which happen once a month, our Learning Club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining a community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.